Welcome to Get Birding with me, Hamza Yassin, a guide to bird watching and home to stories about birds. Supported by Swarovski Optic and Zurich Insurance. At the moment I'm watching four hooded crows chasing a buzzard away and they're all calling and displaying and trying to mob it. I don't think it should be called the hooded crow. I think it should be called the caped crow because it's the back of it that it's coloured, not the hood. The buzzard is turning upside down every now and then as the crows get a little bit closer to it but it's using the wind to try and help it gain altitude and move out of the territory of the hooded crows. And one last crow is coming to join the party, the mobbing party, to try and get the buzzard out of their territory. I sometimes feel sorry for birds of prey like peregrines or eagles or buzzards because they never have an easy life. Any place they go, they're always being mobbed or watched. And it's like they're villains, but I see them completely different to villains. I see them as the rulers of the sky. They make the judgment call. They make all the law that happens in the sky. And at the end of the day, they're the top predator, really. As you've just seen, eagles and birds of prey are the top of the food chain. But in reality, humans are the biggest threat to this natural world. The COP26 conference is happening this week in Scotland. And I really hope that the right decision is being made by our leaders. Because whether they like it or not, climate change is happening. And it's changing everything around us. It's affecting everything. Anything that's living in this world is being affected by it. There are lots of people working in conservation, and conservation for birds especially. I spoke to Ben McCarthy, who is the head of Nature Conservation and Restoration Ecology at the National Trust. He was telling me about his work and a report that has noticed some interesting things happening to the climate and that bird life in the UK. We're fortunate to own very significant land holdings, about 250,000 hectares of of land across England, Wales and Northern Ireland. And we've got a a strategy and a commitment to help restore nature um, and do that not only for the the value of nature in an and of itself, but also because of the importance of nature for people. My question to you is, are you a birder yourself? I am a birder. What kind of a birder are you? An enthusiastic one. I'm an enthusiastic one. From the the normal and the mundane blue tits at my bird feeder to the peregrines above the cathedrals to the curlews in the uplands and the terns on the seashores. Whenever I can, I get out and... Uh, Uh, see what I can see. Do you travel a lot between your work so you get the chance to do that birding? Do you go off to different sites and stuff? I do that's one of the that's definitely one of the perks I've got a brilliant opportunity to go and see some of our amazing birding sites across the country really and there's such a range it's it's absolutely fantastic and some of our teams are working on uh, some of our most threatened species and it's uh, it's it's a great privilege really to be able to support them and go and see their work. Now what kind of threatened species are you talking about? I guess some of the most important bird uh, populations we've got are things like our seabird colonies with uh, places like Farns or Blakeney Point on the North Norfolk coast all the way through to uh, some of our upland birds, so things like ring, oog- ring oozles, curlews, as well as um, other species that you would, you might expect to see in some of our more lowland uh, estates. Now, you've recently written a report, haven't you? It, each year we do a review of the weather and how it's impacted on, on nature, and we do that around the end of the year. And that's really just kind of 
taking a, a stock take really of how weather and the changing climate has in, impacted on our on on our wildlife and unsurprisingly it's had quite a significant impact on on our birds and in a number of different ways how so what sort of impacts uh, did you uh, conclude 2020 was one of our warmest years that has some winners and losers so we had some species like uh dartford warblers and wing oozles doing better than they normally did as they were able to overwinter and um uh we had plenty of losers as well though um we had some very big storms and high tides uh which knocked back some of our turn colonies on the places like long nanny and the uh um, the Northumberland coast, which had devastating impact. Last year was also kind of extraordinary, wasn't it, because of the pandemic. We had some surprises as a result of everyone being in lockdown. So we had things like peregrines nesting at a very busy site in Dorset, Corfe Castle, which is normally uh, thronging with people, but last year was much much quieter and so we saw that actually across much of our kind of wider countryside and coastal sites where things like uh, wheat ears and meadow pipits were nesting much closer to footpaths for example than they would normally do and that's because the people weren't there to kind of displace them. What changes in the climate have you noticed and how might they affect the birds or the wildlife, good or bad, that you've seen in the UK? I think the thing which is most noticeable for me, but also my family and my friends and my colleagues, is is this thing around shifting seasons. And the the seasons are very different from when I was a kid, you know, and I'm not that old. I'm kind of uh, nearly 50. And um, But, you know, cold, snowy winters, I think, are thing um, that I don't expect my kids to regularly experience. We have these kind of extraordinary extreme weather events and I think one of the challenges for us all is to kind of recognise that this is the new normal. Milder winter, more extreme weather events and that of course affects our birds and our other kind of biodiversity really significantly and I think one of the things uh, which is quite noticeable is that we're having this kind of kind of trophic collapse of our kind of websites whereby food webs are kind of getting out of sync with one another and so a good example I think is with things like uh, blue tits and what what I think we are seeing and there's good evidence scientific evidence here to uh, support that is that spring is coming earlier it's about four days earlier than it was uh, back in the 70s And that although kind of some of the plants are responding quite quickly to that, the secondary kind of consumers aren't responding as quickly. So just to kind of put that into a bit of kind of tangible examples, um, oak trees are bursting into leaf about one and a half, 1.7 days earlier per decade, which means that the caterpillars uh, which are eating on those same uh, oak leaves are uh, also um, coming out earlier, about seven days earlier. And we're seeing egg hatching of, of things like blue tits and great tits um, happening about five days earlier. But the big problem is for the sparrowhawk, which, of course, is eating those those blue tits. And there's no change in their in their phenology, in the in the in the timings of of their egg hatch and uh, fledgling. And so what we're seeing is that these food webs are breaking down and that's starting to have really significant impacts. And it's because the rate of environmental change is happening much, much quicker than evolutionary change, which is what gave the synchronicity between, you know, oak leaf, caterpillar, blue tits and sparrowhawks. And I think those are some of the things that we're really starting to notice. So do you think the... um adapt or die theory is kind of like a good thing or is this just a consequence of global warming and climate change and then people have to animals have to uh, adapt to that i'm i'm sure life is going to continue on the planet and but what's clear is that we are going to see some extinctions and we've got this kind of extinction debt certainly in the uk where so many of our populations are so isolated and so small 
they're unlikely to survive uh, as kind of breeding populations within 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 the UK. But I also remain kind of optimistic that there's a huge amount we can do. I think it's really important to keep hold of that agency and not uh, not throw our hands up in despair because it's very clear the change that is necessary. And we're really quite good in our understanding of the ecology of some of these birds and what needs to happen. And in fact, where we're targeting our effort, we've got a really successful track record. You know, if you look at things like bitterns, for example, which I've been involved in uh, in previous uh, uh, previously, you know, they've had a massive upturn uh, in the UK as a, as a breeding species. And so if we get the right blend of uh, scientific understanding of the biology and ecology of these species, a good understanding of what the drivers of decline are, we it's absolutely within our gift to turn those things around such that we see species recoveries recovering amazing and um, what can people do to help with declining of birds or habitats or you know can people do something with the national trust to help out yeah definitely there's loads and loads of opportunities from a national trust perspective you know Come and share your records of the birds you see on our on our sites. You know, if you put your data into iRecord, uh, it works its way through to us, so we can use that data to help inform our management. So that's a kind of really tangible thing that people can do. We encourage people to adopt these kind of web surveys or breeding bird surveys because, again, that directly helps influence our thinking and our understanding of the state of birds on our land. But I think there's more generally, there's uh, there's lots of stuff that people can do to encourage wildlife. You know, if you're a landowner, you can improve the quality of your, of your habitats for wildlife. But, you know, people who aren't big landowners like the National Trust can do loads and loads of good things by greening up their local environment, you know, by creating, uh, planting bushes with berries in the park or uh, getting involved with their local green space, digging a pond in their garden, even putting bird feeders out on uh, outside the window. All of these things we know are, are, are positive in terms of supporting uh, uh, birds in particular. Uh, ben, thank you so much uh, for talking to us. It's been wonderful. I've got one last question to ask you. What cool scientific facts about birds can you give me? Oh, crikey. It could be anything. So we're starting to do some work on curlew, and um, w- uh, which is one of most probably the, one of our most threatened species which occurs on, on, on our estate. And one of the things which is so surprising is the rate of productivity of breeding curlews in the UK. And of course, they're a long living species and um, uh, they need a productivity rate. So the amount of young they produce each year needs to be 0.76, if I've remembered my fact correct. And yet we're still not even able to sustain that, which is why we're seeing curly numbers declining. So, you know, which is a real kind of wake up call about this, this scale of challenge that we need. We can't even get, you know, enough curlews being fledged each year to to sustain the population and and all we need is a quarter of a chick each year to do that and that's a that's a kind of salutary kind of uh uh tale for me about how much further we've got to go in terms of shoring up um our our, our threatened species Amazing. Thank you so much, Ben. You've enlightened me in a few things. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. If people want to find out more about the National Trust, uh, where would they have to go? Uh, Visit our website, um, nationaltrust.org.uk, and uh, you can find detail about our work there. But also, if you go to your local National Trust property and speak to one of the rangers and talk to them about how you can get involved in either volunteering and helping with our land management but also getting involved in recording uh, what species and all you need to do is uh, share your data with iRecord uh, on the iRecord app and that data then comes through to us and our nature evidence team and will help drive our conservation action. 
So that's the two hoodies back after mobbing the buzzard. Two of them have still continued with the buzzard and two of them have come back to their territory which is the tree outside the house. And it's their last little bit of calling which to me I think kind of like a, a victory call. Well done buddy, we got rid of the buzzard out of their, out of their territory. Living where I do is kind of an unusual place. It's the borderline between the territories of hooded crows and carrying crows. Very often you can get a hybrid where a hooded crow pairs up with a carrying crow and they produce this offspring that looks more like a hooded crow but has the features of a carrying crow. Slightly bigger darker features, the black is a lot more blacker. Now when I used to do my wildlife tours, I used to sit outside and the ravens and the hooded crows both have a call that signalises that there's an eagle present. And I used to do this trick to say to people, I sense an eagle's about to appear and Lo and behold, three minutes later, the eagle shows itself. But that was just a trick on my behalf. All I learnt was there's a particular kind of call that the hoodies and the ravens produce when they see an eagle, which to me kind of says like avian predator. And all of them are then alerted to a predator in the sky compared to a predator that's on the ground. And I don't know if there's a scientific study about this, but the more and more I sit down and listen and observe birds, and especially the corvid family, I find that trait happens often. For them, it's a matter of life and death. They have to see an eagle, because if they don't, they become food. Everyone has to help with climate change, whether that's individuals or governments. One part of the puzzle that perhaps we're not paying enough attention to is the role of our wetlands. Alice Laver works at the Wildfowl and Wetlands Trust, managing the Steart Marshes site. So when you arrive at Steart, um, you sort of cross the road and you walk through an area we call the Wetland Walkway, which has developed massively. So you've got the sound of the rushes, you've got wooden bridges, you've got the flood bank in front of you, which sits very naturally in the, in the landscape. So it's not sort of a hard sea defence. It's actually a huge bank, five kilometres long, that's really grassy that we actually manage as a hay meadow. And as you, you sort of meander through the paths, you can come up onto the flood bank and you get the most breathtaking views of all, of all the sort of key landmarks of Somerset. So you can see everything from Brent Knoll, Breen Down, there's the Quantocks behind us. Um, and then on a really clear day, so the lighting's probably, I'd say, is the best in autumn, as you can see right over to, to Wales. It is pretty unique. And because it's an estuary, you get that sort of, it's quite interesting because you get the dynamicness of it with all the, the movements of the, the sediment and a massive tide. I think, yeah, the second biggest in the world. So we've got a 15 metre tidal range. It's absolutely huge. But along with all that dynamicness and, and sort of high energy, you've got this tranquility as well. So it's very peaceful. And when the tide's right out, there's something about the mud flats. It almost feels like they absorb noise if that makes sense so it's just this lovely expanse of huge landscapes in front of you wetlands quite simply is where water meets land so it's that transitional zone and oddly enough they they seem to they seem to be forgotten quite a lot and 
which is kind of ironic because it is one of the most diverse ecosystems that you'll you'll ever find. It'll support the most amount of species. And they are massively threatened. We are losing huge percentages of our wetlands on a daily basis, not just UK-wide, but worldwide. And when you think about that, we're trying to deal with climate change as well and carbon emissions. And we know wetlands can store that much carbon compared to, say, your forests, which have their own have their own role to play in carbon storage. If you look at the aerial extent of wetlands across the world and compare it with the aerial extent of, say, our forests, and then compare those with the amount of carbon they storage, we know wetlands, even as they are currently with the smaller area, they will store more carbon than forests. And that's just because of the way that the ecosystem works. So because wetlands remain wet, they release less gas, so release less CO2, whereas obviously with trees, you've got them absorbing carbon, but then they do also release it as well. So it's wetlands are one of the best or the best ecosystem at storing carbon and then holding on to it. So we really need to recognise that value. And I think, again, people recognise peat, but there's still a, we're still really struggling to get people to recognise the value of salt marsh. And when you think... With rising sea levels and climate change, the extent that we're losing that salt marsh and the rate that we're losing it, you know, it's really important that we find more places like Steer where we can create more salt marsh habitat to not only offset those losses, but also help fight the, 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 um, the battle against climate change. seems to be we're having really really cold springs which when birds you have the initial warmth birds will start their sort of nesting behavior insects such as your butterflies and things will come on the wing and then you get these sudden cold spells and it hits those birds massively because they've they've inputted all that energy into maybe laying eggs or making a nest and find and pairing up and then they're hit with the the cold spells most likely lose um, their first sort of initial egg lays and then have to start again. So I think the energy expenditure has a huge impact on birds. And I think, again, that's kind of underestimated. Yeah, it's they're always sort of they're always right on the knife ed- knife's edge, really, in terms of energy and feeding and, and what they're doing with it. We also noticed a shift in species. So in some ways, that's quite an exciting side of climate change. So we know that all our species are moving north. So we're losing some species that we had as they move further up north. But then we've got species like uh, the glossy ibis. Cattle egrets are really quite common now. They're sort of moving in and filling those niches. Um, So there's a definite there's a definite shift. And as managers of reserves, we we have to try and prepare for that change. So longer periods of drought can be really, really challenging for wetlands. So it's whether or not we look at having different species in our in our swards, in our habitats that can be more resilient to that. But then also we get these much longer periods of then really, really heavy rainfall. So it's it's dealing with the extremes. I mean, wetlands themselves are do help to a certain point with the resilience with the changes in climate change because if you think you've got long periods of drought what we do is we hold we can we'll hold water back so they're like giant sponges so that means you've all you've almost got that safe resource of water that you can then draw on and and use to to keep the habitat wet and the, the habitat suitable for the breeding birds it's the heavy rainfall long periods of rainfall that are more challenging to manage that is when you're at a risk of species being flooded out you know losing young all those sorts of things 
that's that's how invasives and things can get in as well so it's it's a constant it's a constant battle and you never know what what each year is going to bring so it's almost a bit of a <laughs> it's almost like you've got to have a bit of a crystal ball and when you start adjusting your water levels so we bring them up higher in the winter to create huge expanses of open water for our wintering birds but if you do that too soon and for too long, you could you could cause you could cause problems. But if you don't, if you then have a really dry winter, you might not then have enough water. So you've got to keep a really close eye on on the water levels and what you're doing with them and, and how and how the species are reacting as well. I'm not into this micromanaging for specific species because I think I think you probably do more damage than good. You end up trying to you overcomplicate the management, and I think you you miss other opportunities. So I feel really strongly that if the habitat is developing in the right direction and it's where you want it to be, so we do we monitor, you know, we'll do all our ditch surveys, our invert surveys, we do our breeding bird surveys, our wintering bird surveys, all of those. So that informs me if we're moving in the right direction. The black wing stilts last year was absolutely massive because it was during probably the darkest time of COVID, I'd say, when people were still, there was still a lot of, a lot more fear than there is now about the unknown. And we'd closed the site. It was only local people were able to access it. And then right at the end of the breeding season, these pairs of, these pair of black wing stilts just appeared in our freshwater marsh. And it was fantastic for the morale of the team but also for the local community so it was lovely you know the bird is coming on and we had a we got a whatsapp group going and we had to keep an eye on it because they laid they laid three eggs and all three chicks fledged and I actually had sleepless night I never thought I would but I had sleepless nights until they were until they were hatched and then you're worried about them obviously being predated and you can't always see them because of the um the vegetation so long we seem to have a constant trickle of interesting birds sort of dropping in, um, which is really lovely. And I'll never forget the first the first day of the tidal inundation. I went out into the main marsh and I looked through my binoculars and there was a great white egret just bang in front of me. And it was like, there you go. It's here. But I love that with nature. And I think people can we do need to protect it and look after it. But I think I don't think we appreciate necessarily how quickly nature bounces back if you want to help sort of the fight against wetlands and and help create more habitat you can sign into www.org.uk and there's the opportunity there to learn more about our wetlands can campaign and to sign a pledge that's all about creating 100 hectares 100,000 hectares sorry of new habitat because that's what it comes down to is we need we need to replace the wetlands that are being lost and the idea behind that is to not only give more give more people access to wetlands which we know have huge health health and well-being benefits so more more wetlands means more people can access them but it's also to help you know the government pledge that they want to be sort of carbon net zero by 2050 so if we don't start creating wetlands and habitat now, there's no way we're going to, to make those targets. At Steart Marshes, we'll get all sorts of visitors from our hardcore birders to sociable birders, all the way down to, to families who like to come with their children on their scooters and, and their dogs. You know, we have dogs on the site as well. Because the site is so big, we are able to divide up areas where we know a, a certain type of person would like to go. So say our freshwater marsh, there's not a surface path. It's a lot quieter. You have less footfall there. So I'd say you're more hardcore birders or people that just want to get away. Some people don't want to speak to anybody and they want to be there on their own. They can escape. And 
quite often you can go there and not see another soul. And I think people love that feeling that they've got the whole place to themselves. Um, but then we've also, I'd say, we're, we, we're moving. I think everybody's moving away from these scary, dark hides that you used to open up and you didn't quite know what you were going to find to encouraging people to sit and enjoy the landscape and the birds in front of them. All our hides are wheelchair accessible, which is massively important. And it's not something that you actually come across very often. We get a lot of people in wheelchairs really quite excited that they can get right up to the to the key viewpoints. You know, on the outsides of the hides, we've got big screens. So perhaps your hard bird birders with their tripods and their scopes can be at peace to the side and inside you can escape the elements and we've got these massive windows in our hides that you can sit in and just enjoy the views and they're light and they're airy um, and they're not dark or scary. So yeah, it's just trying to make everybody feel welcome. There's so much going on um, and I think now is the time for salt marsh especially and wetlands to shine so hopefully, you know, the voice will be heard in the, the upcoming sort of COP26. So fingers crossed. Um, so we're going to be releasing the carbon figures um, and use that as a base for our evidence of, of what wetlands really can do for people uh, and wildlife. And, and yeah, the, the crisis that we're facing with our climate, but also our health and well-being. I think people, people are still struggling with their health and well-being. There's a lot of people still still needing help. Yeah, we're also doing, I'm just um, sort of trialling blue prescriptions with our Green Recovery Fund. So the whole idea behind that is councils get funding and instead of doctors giving someone with depression lots of tablets, they prescribe them to go out regularly with walking groups and to get out into the open. We've been getting lots of different groups onto the reserve and they've been doing everything from um, just enjoying the reserve and bird watching all the way to, to sort of willow weaving and doing art outside. There's loads of opportunities to get involved and I don't think anyone can deny that when you get outside, you feel better. And there is something about being close to water. We have a really close affinity with water that makes you feel calmer. I've noticed in recent years that the local puffin colony near me is slowly going down in number and I didn't understand why. I did a little bit of research and it turns out that the sand deals that the puffins depend on to feed their chicks love the cold waters. But with climate change happening and sea levels rising and also sea levels warming up, the sand deals are moving further and further north, which is making it difficult for puffins to find enough food to feed their chicks. Consequently, chick numbers are slowly decreasing, and I really hope that within the next 10 to 15 years, we manage to find a way to slow global warming and sea level rising and the temperature of the seas from going up, just so that, for the simple reason that we can see puffin chicks. Now, some of you might know the name Yatunda Kuhunde, who spoke to Maya Rose in season one of Get Birding, and I'm catching up with a few of the guests from season one to see how their summer's been so far. Yatunde! Welcome back. Welcome back. How have you been? How's your summer been? Yeah, I've been so well over the summer. This summer I, I had about three months and I was just able to relax from all the stress of university. I did um, a few camps. I went to Southampton and just tried to enjoy my summer with friends, you know, especially when you come from such an intense period or intense term of essays every week I just finished my exams so to really get home back in London and wind down was really relaxing. What are you studying at the moment and what uni? Um, I study geography at Oxford University. 
Ooh, check you out. Yeah. Oh, nice. Um, that's pretty cool. Do you like what you do? And what do you want to do with your degree? Where do you see yourself in like 10, 15 years time? So I initially um, actually was thinking about banking to go into sustainable finance. But I've realized that I think what I want to do, I'm exploring my options as a young person, you know, looking at careers, but I am very interested now in environmental consulting. I definitely do want to go into the conservation sector to provide, you know, representation for more people like me, the representation that I didn't know I necessarily had going into conservation. So environmental consulting, the conservation sector, perhaps research, I've definitely expanded um, my horizons in terms of my job prospects. Now, when you say representation of people like you, what do you mean exactly? So I mean of young black inspirational women in the conservation sector I'm sure that there's no sort of shortage of young and inspirational people but um, people that come from minority groups working class backgrounds um, is something that I didn't necessarily see. Do you think the people at the top the ones that call the shots want to hear from the young generation? I think the people at the top for example politicians do present that they want to you know represent the minority and want to represent the people but when it comes into politics it's sort of saying what everyone wants to hear so I think that in 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 theory yes they do want to represent but I think in actuality they they need to I, I think it's not really a question of if they want to I think they need to hear from the next generation because time and time again young people have been telling the government and people at the top that we need to be heard because this is the environment that we that that we will live in in the future. So I think it's definitely important that you know young people's voices are heard, and I think it's a necessity um, more than it is a want. Do you have any experiences of like the countryside being out there? Because a lot of conservation uh, happens in the countryside, but more and more is beginning to happen in urban areas. Have you got any experience of? the urban side and the countryside? And is there any differences? Yeah, so over the summer, actually, I went on an environmental camp with Action for Conservation, which is a youth environmental charity that I worked with. That was really nice. So we went to the Peak District for about five days and did different team building um, exercises and different environmental activities to try and educate some of the the urban young people about the things that can happen in the countryside and what you can do. So volunteering on that was, you know, my experience of the countryside. So that was really nice. And I think that my experience of urbanism and my experience of trying to green London, you definitely see some differences. Again, London, you don't have the vast plains of green um, but when you go to the countryside it's really an invigorating experience and it really can ground you as a person and it was almost dare I say medit like it felt like I was meditating when I went to the Peak District just to look around you and just see masses of green was just such a change if if just a change to the built-up environment in London it was great I loved it. Now you grew up in South London is that right? Yeah, South East London. What was the nature like? Yeah, so I live on the outskirts of London. Fortunately, on the outskirts, we do have some green spaces. And the green spaces that we had were mainly, mainly wood. It was the woods called the Abbey Woods. And I was very intimidated for a long time to go into the woods. I hadn't been there for like the 10 years that I lived in the area, you know, because the woods are, I think, are quite intimidating for me. For Because I'm generally really the only really environmentalist or someone who just loves being outside in my family. My, all my sisters are quite hardworking and often working on either schoolwork or um, or their job. It was really, I was the only one. So, and even out of my friends as well, no one really wanted to go to the woods with me when I'd ask. So I just basically didn't visit it at all. I do go to the woods now, but I didn't initially. And those are really the only green spaces that we had. Not many, you know, our parks were, t um, you know, underlain with tarmac or asphalt. So it was definitely quite a built up environment. It definitely wasn't central London with skyscrapers, but it was a very residential area. 
it is a very residential area. What are the benefits? You're already saying it calms me down and I can see you're already beginning to slow and imagine you being at the woods. Why? Why do you think it gives you that effect? Because I think that, you know, when you go out, I think, into nature, I think you consider your five senses. So you consider what you see. And when you go to the woods, it's like you don't see the buildings, the, you know, the monotone colours, the grey buildings or the flats around your area or, you know, the common cars. Instead, you see, you know, greenery. You see, you know, different wildlife you see different flowers and it's just something different to what I was generally used to and then going on to smell it smells different as well you know it you have lots of cars passing through to drop people to school and to get back home and you can really smell the congestion you can smell the pollution in the area but going to the woods it just smells more it smells more green, dare I say, for lack of a better word. And also what you touch as well. You you really grasp and you really take into account those different senses when you go into the woods. And I think that's what's really calming. When I was younger, I used to seek for something different anyways. I thought life was really monotonous, going to school, coming back. Okay, you can hang out with your friends around the chicken shop or whatever you did after school. But... I really just desired change. And I think as well, I took a liking to geography from such a young age as well, that geography is really just learning about what's around the world, what's outdoors, what's beyond London. And I think I really enjoyed that because I liked geography so much. I wanted to explore it. I wanted to feel it and really grasp those different senses of, you know, the outdoors, just something different. But I think my family was very used to, you know, going to work and coming back because I think that's what the natural person does you know they're used to that very working lifestyle and especially my mum who you know came to this country when she was um, quite young also feels a need to you know definitely work and provide for the family and my sisters they they liked being in you know I was born in the time of the internet they liked being indoors they liked watching movies but I just decided desired something really different I think what I have changed is my mum's outlook on on sustainability so not only do I like the outdoors but I like the preservation of the outdoors I want other people to see it I want to go to it more and that's what I encourage you know different lifestyle sustainable lifestyle changes that my mum can do from the comfort of her home I'm not sure if I can change my mum or my sisters to become environmentalists or conservationists but I can change their ideologies and their thinking and I think what attracted them was that the fact that they can do it in their own home. Do you think it's important to have representation and role models, uh, seeing people working in conservation in the natural world? I think it's important to young people, especially because as young people, we're so impressionable. We are learning a lot about life generally. You know, just to see that representation can persuade someone to get into conservation and not persuade it in the sense that they're forcing their hand but really just to show to show and represent something that someone might be interested in as young people yeah we're impressionable we love to see what's around us we're considering our options and we need to know that we don't have to follow one's narrow path and I think that reflects when I was younger that I didn't have to follow this monotonous lifestyle of go to school and then back home then go to school then back home I think that's quite similar in you know considering career prospects it just expands your horizons a bit and giving options is exactly what I think young people need so they don't feel pigeonholed into a certain career or industry you said your mother came here when she's young where did she come from she came from Nigeria. Nigeria. Okay. Have you been to Nigeria? Do you go I've back been often? To Nigeria. Yeah, a handful of times. And I do aim to go um, next year as well. I love to visit my home country. Is there a change? Do you see a difference between Nigeria and the United Kingdom when it comes to conservation and thinking about the natural world? You know, Nigeria, I think, is one of the countries in Africa that is experiencing rapid urbanization and, you know, population increase and people moving to the cities. And I think that the conservation over there is not as publicized. 
as it is in the UK. I don't think I would have been able to search, you know, conservation organisations or environmental organisations near me if I was in Nigeria and get a ton of options. But I think in the UK, that's almost more of a movement than it is in Nigeria. It's definitely um, more sort of socially practised conservation in general and but I think Nigeria and other places in Africa have more large-scale initiatives as well as well as the grass grassroots activism that just need that publicity essentially to you know reach people around around the country so I think the grassroots activism definitely needs that support, whether it be financial, or social or political support, in order for it to be at the same level that the United Kingdom is at today. That's interesting because in, I'm from Sudan, a country called Sudan in uh, northeast Africa, and I experience nature there. But for them, nature is a byproduct. There'll be a farmer working the field and seeing all the nature that's around him. but for him, it's a given. They've always been there. They're always going to be there. There isn't the connection between what can we do to improve their numbers and, you know, conservation, all that kind of stuff. So, but slowly, slowly, it's beginning to happen. The more people have TVs in their uh, houses, the more they, the internet is being um, distributed around the country. They're beginning to see what's happening to the world and how they are being affected and how they can affect mother nature um so that's really interesting to hear it from the nigeria perspective yeah no absolutely you know again i learned another term related to people and i think it's similar in nigeria related to people who sort of see the nature as you know a resource something that i can use you know better their you know better their lives and their livelihood in general and it's called anthropocentrism and I think that nowadays it's really just realising that nature has an intrinsic value and inherent worth and, you know, is a resource that needs to be, you know, sustainably managed. So I think I definitely agree. It's great to see that that's happening in Sudan as well. And, you know, to to, to have terms assigned to these sorts of movements is really, it just allows more social awareness, I think, different terms to, you know, these different aspects of you know conservation if you were a bird what sort of bird would you be if I was a bird I think I'd be a robin because I'm very festive I do like celebrations and I do like being a representative of something put it there yes love it love it we haven't had a robin yet so that's that's good that's good Yutunde thank you so much for joining me I hope uni goes amazing for you and I look forward to seeing you at some point in the future showing us the way and how to preserve how to preserve conservation and look after the the natural world. The effects of global warming that I've seen on birds are dramatic in every single way. I was lucky enough to go to the South Sandwich Islands and witness what's happening to the glaciers that are down there. There's a really sombering photograph that my friend's taken and he's standing in front of a glacier and seven years later we come back to the same glacier and it's retreated back by about 50 to 60 metres. And he was shocked about how much has receded in that last seven years. And that's all thanks to global warming, unfortunately. I really hope in the next 10 to 15 years that global warming is slowed down, just to give Mother Nature a time to breathe and come back. So that sound there that you hear like a bark, that oh, oh, that's a blackback gull and a whole load of gulls are flushed because the eagle has just flown through and everything's up in the air at the moment and all the gulls have come across the bay from the far side to the near side near me and they're all beginning to settle down a little bit.
but I don't think they'll be there for long because the Eagle will be back at some point and I'm sure it will flush them all back up and there'll be another kerfuffle of calling. Here they go. They're flushed. So we've got oyster catchers, curlew, herring gulls, blackback gulls. They're really not happy. Now, the, even the ducks have gone up, which means there's definitely an eagle around, and I can just about see one quite far in the distance that's flowing through, but there must be another one that I can't spot at the moment because all the birds have spotted it and they're flushed in the air. Ah, I know why I haven't spotted it, because it's right above my head. It's, I'm standing right underneath it. Um, it's kind of magical to see that. The eagle clearly doesn't care about me. And I think it's just moving. It's not in hunting mode at the moment. But it's remarkable to see how well attuned the other birds are to the eagles. And if you know how to read the birds well and to know their calls and their actions, you can anticipate when something's around. So they saw the eagle way before me. And I didn't see it because it was above my head, but they gave me an inkling that something was wrong and they started moving around. The eagles just sat there, really cruising around. It's slowly making its way across the bay to the other side. Thank you so much for listening. It's been absolutely amazing doing this series so far. And there's still lots more to come. If you'd like any more information and want to follow us on social media, you can find us at GetBirdingPod. GetBirding is sponsored by Birding Optic Specialist Swarovski Optic. And Zurich Insurance, insuring conservation groups across the UK. Get Birding is a peanut and crumb production.